0: Well, I'll ask if you would bow your heads with me we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, I pray that uh, you would show us Christ this morning as the ultimate head of the church. who, Just like the head that you have given us with a brain in it seeks to care for our bodies, Jesus you care for us. You nourish us with your word and with your love, you sustain us with your promises and you give us hope. And I pray that you would do that for us this morning and that you'd help me as I walk us through some of the more challenging verses to understand, Lord where in, in, in some ways we're reading someone else's mail We're reading a letter, that was written to a church 2,000 years ago facing similar struggles and also very different struggles in a very different world than we live in today. So I pray that you would help us, help my words to help us as we try to bridge the gap and take some principles for application in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. So this morning, uh, I'm going to encourage you to open your Bibles uh, to 1 Corinthians 11, and we're going to be looking at verses 2 to 16, and as I mentioned last week, I'm doing a new thing on the back of your bulletin, the handout you got is the sermon outline, and it's an extra long one this week, because we've got a lot to work through, um... This passage is one of the most challenging, it is the most challenging section in Corinthians, and it's one of the most challenging passages in the whole New Testament, actually, to really grasp what is totally, all, what's going on in this whole thing. Um, I spent more time reading in preparation for this message than I think I've ever spent for any sermon that I've ever preached. Um, i probably read 12 different commentaries. I don't usually do that. Usually I read two. So, um, and by the middle of the afternoon Saturday, I was saying, Lord help. Um, so uh, I am somewhat still in process, but I understand this text better than I did a week ago. And guess what? This is not the first time that I've worked through this text or read commentaries on this text, either. Alright, so that's... this. I, I've known it's coming, um, I've wrestled through it in years past and tried to understand, so I'm sure if you've at least read through the Bible once, you, you may have bumped into this passage and said, hmm, what's going on about, with all this head-covering stuff? And uh, I know guys with long hair and women with short hair, is that wrong? What, what's, what's going on? Um, so, hopefully you have a little bit better understanding at the end of today um if you are just completely confused by the end of today um y- you would be in good company there's many many bible commentators who at the end of working through this passage guys with like more more degrees behind their name than Fahrenheit right there they're going what do we do with this so the point being, if you're, if you're confused, it's okay. This is a humbling passage because we're looking into the world of the Bible that is very different than ours in some ways, even though it's the same world. So bring your questions next week to sermon study. All right? Write them, write them down. And if you got a question, Joel, what about that? Um, share it. I encourage you. That's what this is for, so you can remember your question. All right. So... Up to this point in Corinth, we've been working through a topic about idolatry and should you eat food sacrificed to idols. That's from chapter 8 to chapter 10. In chapter 11, verse 2, there's a shift. And it goes all the way up to chapter 14. And Paul's going to talk about three new topics, all having to do with the church gathered together and what goes on when the church has their big get-together each week. And there's three things that are going on. ...that we'll be looking at. Chapter 11 covers two of them. Um, There may be some questions that the church has still... ...about policies regarding men and women... ...and how they should cover or not cover their heads. That's what we look at today. Next week, people are getting drunk during the Lord's Supper. That's not good. So we'll be looking at that. And then chapters 12 to 14... um, It's all about spiritual gifts and how they are used in the body of Christ and how they're being abused wrongly in court. So that's the section we're jumping into, and we're going to be reading. I'm going to read this morning from the English Standard Version translation, the ESV. Usually I read from the NIV. Love the NIV. There's a couple translation decisions here that the ESV makes that I think are correct. So in Greek, the word woman and the word man are the same word for husband and wife, okay? So its context determines whether the man that you're talking about is a husband or whether the man or the woman is a wife. So in other words, the word for woman can be the woman, or if... In context is talking about a wife, you could translate as the wife. So the ESV is, instead of saying woman in a couple spots, it's going to say husband or wife, okay? So you'll you'll catch that. If you're following along in the NIV and you see woman and I read wife, that's because I'm reading ESV, and I think (coughs) ESV is correct there, even though I'm not saying the the NIV is not wrong, I just think the ESV is bringing out, it, it is a wife that Paul's talking about, or it is a husband that Paul's talking about. So I hope... That doesn't confuse you too much as I as I read, and you're like, wait, that doesn't say that quite in my verse. So, 1 Corinthians 11, chapter, or verse 2. Now, Paul says, I commend you, because you remember me in everything, and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, And the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head uncovered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But a woman is the glory of but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Just no, nobody knows what that means, by the way. Like no, everybody at the end of their guess says we're just guessing. So, anyway, that's one, one of like five verses in the Bible that people are like, we're still not sure what's going on there. Anyhow, ne- nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so now man is born of women, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be conscientious, contentious, to, to fight about this stuff, we have no such practice, no other such practice, nor do the churches of God. All right. Um, so let's <laughs> dive in here. The main idea in these verses... Here's Paul's main point. When men and women pray and prophesy in the church gathering, and if you're like, wait, what is prophecy? That's coming. We'll talk about that. Um, Speaking truth on God's behalf. When they do that in the church gathering, men who cover their heads, Paul says, dishonor Jesus. And wives who uncover their heads up front, publicly, dishonor their husbands. If I was into catchy sermon titles, this one would be Hats On, Hats Off, okay? But we're not talking about hats here, it's cloth coverings. And Paul's going to support this claim with six reasons. And although a six-point sermon is unusual for me, I think it's important for helping us just get the lay of the land in this passage, so I've got that there for you on the handout. So... First, Paul's going to set the stage in verse 3 by bringing up the whole concept of headship in the Trinity, headship in the church, and headship in marriage. So that's kind of the way he sets the stage. And all of these six reasons that he's giving are all support for his claim. Husbands, hats off. Wives, hats on. Basically, six reasons. Okay? So, the first one is because of headship. Second, he talks about the cultural shame of a publicly uncovered wife. Third, he's going to say that the reason for the uncovered man and the covered woman is rooted in God's creation story. Fourth, he's going to say that angels care about head coverings for some reason. Um, Fifth, Paul says that nature itself teaches that this policy regarding head coverings for man and woman isn't inconsistent and unfair. Why not fair that wives have to cover and men don't. Yeah. He's going to explain when nature itself teaches you something about the differences between men and women. Six, Paul says that all the churches have this policy, so the Corinthians should too. So That's the road map. Let's we'll dive in. First, Paul's going to talk about headship in the Trinity, the church, and marriage. So, verse 2 of chapter 11, he's Kicking off this section, and he basically tells the Corinthians, Good job, guys. You've been keeping to the traditions that I entrusted you with. You've been following, at least in this particular area. This is a rare good job in the letter. Um, Most of it's not. They're not doing well. But Paul feels like maybe they need some more encouragement in this area or some more teaching in this area. Perhaps they're struggling to see why the traditions about head coverings are important. That's what's motivating Paul to say what he says next. Verse 3, but guys, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So here in these verses, the Apostle Paul, he kicks off his whole discussion by laying out a hierarchical structure that God himself established. A structure of God-ordained authority in the world. A structure that's not willy-nilly or arbitrary. A structure that's not based in power or might or the ability to grasp control over others based on strength or money or your place in history a structure of authority that's not based on what the world bases it on attractiveness skill, jockeying position constantly trying to one up each other no, this is a structure that is God ordained structures of authority rooted in the way that the three persons of the divine being who created us all relate to each other Structures that are rooted in the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In the Trinity, God the Father is the head, the head of Christ. He's the authority. And though Paul doesn't explicitly say this here, when we put together all that the Bible teaches about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, it would also be flow from that the teaching of everything put together that the Father isn't just the head of Christ, as Paul says here, but also the head of the Spirit of Christ. And we could camp here for the rest of our time together and preach a whole sermon on the Trinity and how the three persons of the Trinity are really one divine being who eternally speaks and acts as one. We don't have time to do that. I have preached a sermon on the trinity at least twice we'll do it again one of these days but just remember that to say god is the head of christ is to say that both jesus and the spirit of jesus follow the father in all their acts of creation and in all their acts of salvation even you know the, the spirit of god is called the breath of god right the wind of god and the son of god jesus is also called the word of god and creation happens as God speaks, the Father speaks words by breath. All three persons are active equally in the creation of reality, and yet it is the Father who speaks the word eternally, and the Son, who, or the breath, who comes out from the Father. The Father, as it were, is the fountain of the deity. All right? that's, that's fancy theological language. Or the prime originate, even though they exist eternally as persons. There's never been a time when the Father has not had a word. There's never been a time when the Father has not had breath. These are just images that the Bible gives us to help us understand, conceive of this beautiful mind behind the reality that we live in. The living God. God is the head of Christ, and Christ is... Says Paul, Christ is the head of every man. This is in contrast to what Paul will say about man, singular, being the head of a singular woman. In other words, Paul does not say every man is the head of every woman, or that mankind is in charge of womankind. That's not what Paul's saying. Man is the head of woman. That's why I think the ESV is correct in bringing up husband, wife, wife language here. Paul is talking about marriage, a husband and wife relationship, which, as we'll see in a few verses, is first established in the Bible in the pattern of Adam and Eve. They are the first humans and the first marriage in the Bible. Adam is ultimately the man, and Eve is the woman who provides the husband-wife paradigm for all humanity to follow. These humans also provide an eternal paradigm for what Christ Jesus, the head of the new humanity, his relationship with the church, which is compared to a bride, is going to look like. So Adam's relationship with Eve is temporary. It points to the eternal relationship of the last Adam, Jesus, and a new humanity, his bride. Okay? And that picture is eternal, and is something that we will all be a part of in the new creation forever. So, when Paul says Christ is the head of every man, he is most certainly talking about redeemed mankind, the church of God. So that includes, head of every man would be the head of everyone in Christ, and Christ is the head of the church, everyone in him. Colossians 1:18 Paul says the same thing Jesus is the head of the body the church so the Messiah Jesus is the head of God's new humanity he's the authority and the church is like his body Paul also compares the church to the bride of Jesus in Ephesians 5 he says Ephesians 5:22 to 23 wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. So again, God the Father is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of every man, every man meaning all of mankind, who trusts in Christ. And the husband is the head of the wife. This verse on headship sets up the main, in verse 3, sets up the main theological principle for this whole section that Paul is going to dive into. Head coverings matter. What you do or don't do with your head matters because headship matters. And headship is something set up by God. It's an authority structure woven into the very fabric of reality itself. An authority structure that reflects back on the very relationship of the persons of the Trinitarian God. It has absolutely nothing to do with value, equality, with natural strength, natural skill, natural wisdom, or ability, or power, or worth. Headship has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with God-given authority that is properly expressed in a loving relationship, in marriage of a husband's sacrificial service in love and a wife's respect for authority. As God is over Christ, so Christ is also over his church. And as Christ is the head of the church, so the human husband is head over his wife. And depending on what culture a human lives in today, a human will either find what Paul is saying here horrifying or totally obvious. All of us this morning, we happen to live in a radical, egalitarian society. A society that is not only bent on obliterating the social and relational distinctions between men and women in the home and in the bedroom, but is also bent on obliterating the biological distinctions of gender itself. So that's our society. So this is horrifying to the modern society, in the West at least, which is about, what, one-third of the world? In the rest of the world, more patriarchal societies, what Paul says here is a no-brainer. Well, obviously, the the man's the boss. The tragedy in those societies is the abuse of male authority when it becomes about dominance and power and not love and service. What Paul says back in 1 Corinthians 7 about husbands treating their wives as their own bodies and about wives actually owning their husbands' bodies. Like, if you're the body, that's your head. You own it. It belongs to you. So just as the head cares for the body, the body cares for the head, okay? Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 7. Wives, your body belongs to your husband. And everybody's like, amen! And then he says, and husbands, your body belongs to your wives. And the husbands in that culture were like, what? She's my property. So Paul is cutting between two lines here, dividing the world in half with God's way. I hope you see that the Muslims read this and go, "Heck yeah, cover up, woman, and not just your head, but all of you." Okay, and th- that's like one billion people. <laughs> so here we are in our high and mighty in the West, and we're like, "Oh, this is so repre- oppressive." And there's extremes on both sides. I'm not, con- I'm not, I'm not pro-Muslim here. I'm not saying that's that's right. I'm saying the Bible offends both. Because God's design for headship is utterly unique. We must be very careful not to judge what Paul is saying based on our culture, but to see, we must try to see how what Paul says about headship is rooted in the very nature of the creator himself, as a triune being, who made this world and everything in it to point to what he is like eternally. Now, let's look at Paul's second step. After he sets up that head, the headship conversation, he says that point to the cult, there's a cultural shame of a publicly uncovered wife. Alright, so I'm going to read Paul's command about head coverings again, and then dive into this reason. 1 Corinthians eleven four to 6 Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. Paul being sarcastic here. Important to see. Might as well go buzz it off. But since it's disgraceful to do that, to go have your head publicly shaved, then let her cover her head. So... Here in these verses, Paul is saying that when a man prays or prophesies, when he speaks words of truth to God's people in church, or he speaks to God publicly in church, in the gathering of believers, he ought not cover his head, because that's going to bring dishonor to his head. Who's his head? Jesus. Christ is the head of every man. What about the ladies, though? Can they cover their heads or uncover their heads? No, it's shameful and will dishonor her head if she prays up front and prophesies in the church with her head uncovered. Well, who's her head? Husband. So men, hats off. Women, hats on. We're not talking about hats here, but just to try to keep that. That's what Paul's basically saying. Now, notice that Paul says, if a lady does this in church, it's the same As if her head were shaven. In verse 6, Paul gets a bit sarcastic about this. And he says, if you're going up there in front of the church, and you're publicly uncovering your head. You might as well go shave your head because what you're doing is disgraceful. And so it's like you're shaving your head in public. Now in Corinth, in the ancient world, when a woman would be publicly shaved, it was punishment for sexual unfaithfulness for adultery. It was shameful, a shameful punishment. The Germans used to do this during the reign of the Third Reich, right? When they found women who were, uh, French women who were supposedly, I'm trying to remember what they even called them. They, basically they were in, you know helping High Jews or they were working for the resistance, right? They would find these women and they would shave them publicly. There's a public shame, okay? Very shameful. So what Paul is saying is that an uncovered head up in public, in that culture, in the role of praying and prophesying was the same as being buzzed in public. It was shameful. So, what's, what's going on with the guys then? Mo- most scholars believe, most scholars believe, that what Paul says here is buried somewhere in the traditions of Roman worship. And how the worship of the day, the way the Romans and the ancient world worshipped idols, clashed with God's vision of how people were to worship him. So listen carefully here. When Romans would offer sacrifices to images of their gods and idols, we've seen artifacts, we can dig up pictures and ancient reliefs, of men and women, actually, offering these sacrifices, and they have, they, they peel their togas over their heads, okay? Or they cover their heads as they're offering sacrifices to this image. And people disagree, scholars disagree, surprisingly, um, about what that symbolizes. Why would they do that? As I've studied it, I've come to the conclusion, and it's not just me, But I think that the reason they did this was bound up in the the theology, the idea of what an idol was, okay? So an idol, a shiny golden image or an object that you're worshiping, it was meant to be an earthly reflection of the spiritual being that you can't see. Now you can't see the spiritual being that you're worshiping, Baal or Asherah, so you're worshiping this idol, this image, this shiny image. And the idol's job is to be all shiny and reflect the glory of this unseen being that you're worshiping. And you, as a human, don't want to get in the way of the idol's job of reflecting the glory. So you you cover your head, okay, because that's a sign of humility in the presence of the idol. I don't want to um, take any glory or honor from the image of God, so I'm going to cover up hope that makes sense um i'm I'm gonna i'm gonna cover up because i don't want to steal this idol's thunder and and so that seems to be what was going on here in the context but this practice paul says of covering your head when you talk to jesus in public worship to jesus offering your sacrifice of praise to him in public when when you do that that's actually bringing dishonor to jesus Why? Why is that? Well, verse 7, which we'll look at more closely in a minute, seems to indicate the reason has to do with the fact that man was created in the glorious image of God. Man, mankind, was meant to reflect the radiance of God out into creation. Women were created from man to help man do that very thing as well, to help him take care of God's world, God's way, for the honor, the glory... Of God. Listen to how Paul talks about this in second his second letter to the Corinthians. Second Corinthians 3, verse 18 says, We all who with unveiled faces, uncovered faces, contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So here's what's going on. As we Christians gaze with eyes of faith on Jesus, who's God's perfect image, the perfect human one, the perfect image of everything we are supposed to be as humans, we are to reflect Jesus. If men covered themselves up in the presence of Jesus, like they used to do when offering sacrifices to idol images, they're dishonoring Jesus. Your job isn't to hide yourself from Jesus, but to... Reflect Jesus, to be like Jesus. Nowadays, for a guy to pray with his hat on, for example, it doesn't have the same symbolic significance at all. I don't think Paul would have a com- a problem with that. This this was a very symbolic thing these men were doing. They'd come up and they'd put their covering on, and they would, and Paul's like, don't do that. You don't have to hide yourself from the image. You are worshipping in the presence of Jesus, the image of God, and you're supposed to image him and reflect him. But if men weren't supposed to do it, then why should women cover their heads? In that day and age, okay, women, married women, usually cover their hair in public for a woman in ancient Roman culture to uncover her head, basically let her hair be fully seen, unfurled in all its glory, was considered highly sexual. And what's more, it was becoming increasingly popular in Rome for a woman to do this. What it symbolized was throwing off the yoke of marriage and declaring freedom from your man. A head covering symbolized not available. I belong to my husband. It's like a, a wedding ring, okay? It would be the equivalent of a woman taking her wedding ring off whenever she went in public. It's basically, so she would go to the parties without a ring. Well, you go to the parties without your head covered. And in Paul's day, um, there was a huge movement going on of women doing this. Called the new Roman woman, okay, and they were going about in public, their hair unfurled, and it was a huge statement. To let down your hair was a way of saying single, not single, but ready to mingle, right? And that's kind of the idea, right? I am, I'm available, and since a public head shaving was a punishment for adultery, standing. Up in front of others with an unveiled head could be seen as the same thing it's an adulterous move that's why paul equates unveiled worship with having your head shaved so while men would offend jesus by covering their heads women would shame their heads their husbands by uncovering their heads up front publicly these are cultural issues Today, no one thinks that a lady without a hat on in church is making that statement. Though wearing a hat in certain settings might symbolize an informal disregard of authority or a disrespect for public norms. Okay, Like if you're invited to the Oval Office of the President of the United States of America you wear a ball cap, don't do that. right? Unless you're like a rapper or something and you can get away with it. Uh, so, so anyhow... Um, point being, I think culture is driving a lot of this. These are the cultural issues at play. But verse 7, we've got to look at, verse 7 to 9. Um, Paul says there's a little more going on. He gives us reason for the uncovered man and covered woman. And he says it's rooted in creation. The order of creation. He says, for a man ought not cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So, what does Paul mean here? Well, he's simply reading the creation story in Genesis 1 and 2. He notes that the reason a man ought not cover his head in worship, for the reasons that the Romans were doing it, is because the man is the image and glory of God. He gets that. From the Bible, God created Adam in his own image. You don't need to cover up your head like you did in the presence of idols because you are the image of the divine being. Don't cover your head. You're the image of God. Jesus isn't an idol. Jesus is the one you're supposed to reflect. So unveil your face and look at him fully so you start to look like him. But then Paul gives the reason why things are different for women, and he's using the creation story to ground his practical advice about head coverings and worship. He says that while man is the image and glory of God, woman is the glory of man. And the reason he gives in verse 8 is because woman came from man. Eve, in the creation story, is taken from the side of Adam. Just like Jesus is the head of the church, and the church is called Jesus's. Body. The church is the body of the last Adam, just like Eve was from the body of the first Adam. These pictures are God-given. And they're in the text. This does not mean women, woman was not created in God's image. Genesis 1, verse 27 makes it pretty clear. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And yet what Paul says is that woman is the glory of man. We could toss around ideas about what that means for a long time. People debate it. I think the basic idea is that woman was not created to shame her head, her husband, but to bring honor to her husband. In other words, she was created, Paul says in verse 8, for man to help him, not hurt him not shame him, not rip off her veil up in front of everyone and embarrass him. So as the church seeks to honor and glorify Jesus, so a wife should seek to honor and glorify, and that sounds weird, but honor, respect, reflect the worth of her husband and her marriage. Praying in that context with a head uncovered would do the opposite. It would embarrass her husband. Oh my gosh. She's up there up front in front of everybody with her hair unfurled for the world to see. Okay? This is not right. Why just while she's praying up front? That's the question. Paul seems to only limit this when a a woman is drawing attention to herself. Not when she's sitting in the pew. Well, they didn't have pews. These were houses, very private little gatherings of 20 to 25 people, maybe, in a house. Usually women didn't cover their heads in the house. Why? You're at home. And especially if it was your house, like Lydia, who was a lady who the church was meeting in her house. And she's like, This is my house. You're in my house. I don't need to cover my head. <laughs> I, I, and, and Paul's saying, w- When they're praying and prophesying, should. Okay? So when you're drawing attention to yourselves. Okay, all these things are debated. You get 30 scholars and all of them disagree. Okay. This is where I land. Um, I'm not saying you have to think this. This, this is what makes the most sense to me as I've wrestled through these verses. Alright. Now let's look at what Paul says in verse 10. Apparently, the angels care about head coverings. Verse 10. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. This verse, as I mentioned at the beginning, is one of a handful of verses, very small handful of verses, that Bible scholars believe we will never reach a consensus on what this means. We can only guess. I've got plenty of thoughts, ideas, only all of them are half-baked. Okay? (laughs) So I'm not going to share them with you, especially not publicly. Um, But this morning... I'll say I I don't know yet exactly what this means. If I were to venture a guess, meaning on some of the work of others, right, it would have to do something to do with the fact that angels are spiritual beings that are under the headship of a human, Christ. And so they have a keen interest, angels have a keen interest, in making sure that all humans observe the proper authority structures that God has set up. A woman honoring her husband pictures the glory and the honor that angels are supposed to show Jesus Christ along with the church. So angels care about wives honoring their heads because Jesus and the angels care about the church honoring Jesus. And so when a wife publicly disgraces her husband... It says something about God ultimately that heads deserve to be disgraced, that headship deserves to be dragged through the mud. Now we're not going to go down the ride of what if the head is disgraceful and is dishonorable and deserves punishment. Okay, that's that's a different that's a different uh, topic. Just because something can become broken doesn't mean that the picture that God set up is not beautiful. Now, Paul gives a really important qualification here in verses 11 to 12. Lest you think that men are somehow more important than women or that women are somehow not equal to men. Paul says, hold up. Nevertheless, he says, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. We need each other. And then he says, verse 12, for as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. They have the last laugh, right? (laughs) And all things are from God. So before men boast in their authoritative roles in marriage and start to demean a woman or treat them like property... Let every man remember that he once passed through a birth canal. And let everyone remember that we all come from God. He is the head and the Lord of all. That's what Paul's qualification there is. Hold on. Don't get too carried away with how great being a head is. You came from a woman. You wouldn't exist without a woman. All right? And none of you would exist without the headship of God. Now, the fifth thing he says as a reason for covering or not covering, he he, he says nature itself indicates this policy regarding head coverings in verses 13 to 15. He pulls out a fifth argument as he's trying to convince the Corinthians of his position. He says, basically, uh, well, basically, it seems like maybe the Corinthian ladies were struggling with feeling like this isn't fair. That the men have to cover their don't have to cover their head, but we do. Especially <laughs> like this is happening in our houses, right? We're, we we should be able to do what we want in our little household church. Like, I let my hair down at my house all day. Why do I have to cover up? You know, what, what, what's going on? And Paul basically says, "Hey, look at the nature of things, ladies. You love hair, and you cover your heads with it, and you glory in it. And yet, it was God Himself who covered your head with." hair so what's so bad about a covering but men if they have long hair at least in paul's context was a shameful thing so that's basically what paul's saying listen to verses 13 to 15 he says judge for yourselves: is it proper for a wife to pray to god with her head uncovered does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair it's a disgrace for him but if a woman has long hair it is her glory For her hair is given to her for a covering. So for a man to have long hair in that day, Paul says, was shameful. Now, I know that the Apostle Paul knows his Bible. He's aware of the Nazarite vow in Numbers 21. A vow that God approved where Israelite men would never cut their hair. And surely Paul was aware of Samson. A judge in Israel who had long hair, and that was not considered shameful. It was a sign of his strength. So, Paul, who knows his Bible, why would he say here that to, for a man to cultivate a long flowing mane of hair was wrong? Well, in that society, in Rome, it generally meant only one thing when a man grew his hair long and flowing, Meant that he wanted to be penetrated by other men. Wearing long hair in that day signified a desire to overturn God's intentions for marriage and for sexuality. And thus it was a shameful thing to do in that culture. But women in that day, and really in most cultures today, they gloried in their God given tresses of hair. It was a natural thing for them to do. What Paul says here is intended to illustrate why the ladies in Corinth shouldn't buck against what feels to be a double standard. It honors their husbands, he says, which is what God desires, and God himself gave you a covering of hair. So what's the big deal, really? Doesn't nature itself teach you that you should have something on your head and that's okay? to be his reasoning here there's one final thing Paul says as a reason to abide by his policy he moves from judge for yourselves to hey everyone else is doing it verse six, uh, that's the sixth reason he gives his last reason all the churches have this policy and the Corinthians should too see that in verse 16 if anyone in this kind to be contentious we have no such practice nor do the churches of God. So, the NFV clarifies a bit by saying we have no other practice. In other words, this is the way things are done. To go against these guidelines would be deliberately contentious. To deliberately be quarrelsome about this would bring disunity to Christ's church and dishonor Jesus. So, how are we going to apply this to us today? Well, three things as we close. First... I want you to notice that women are praying and prophesying publicly in the church. We'll talk about prophecy in a future sermon, but I just want you to see that. Even though Paul is teaching male headship in a marriage, the words of women are welcomed and encouraged in the public gathering of the people of God. Second, it's the glory of a wife to honor her husband, and it is the calling of the husband to be the head of his home, and thus to do all in his power to nourish and care for his body, his wife. He is to serve her, love her, protect her, as Paul says in Ephesians five, twenty eight to thirty. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. So when husbands and wives relate to each other in this way, they show the world, what's this all about? they show the world a small picture, albeit not perfect, but a small true picture of how all of us in the church are to experience our relationship with Jesus Christ, our head. We seek to honor him and respect him, and he lays his life down for us. Obviously, there are a thousand more things that could be said about this, what it means, what it does not mean, how it's been misunderstood, how it's been abused by so many cultures. However, when it's done well, which is rare, it is a beautiful thing. And the final point that is an application for us today is that distinctions between men and women matter. They are not arbitrary. They are God-given. Every culture is going to have different ways of expressing manhood and womanhood and protecting it. Christians, we need to be very discerning of these things and avoid the blur to the degree that we are able. Celebrating our uniqueness as male and female made both in God's image. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word and even passage like this that I find so humbling because I need so much help to understand it. And even at the end of the day, I hold things loosely knowing I don't think I have grasped everything. I pray, Father, that you would help us to continue to have a posture of humility before your word, to stand under the word and let it teach us, not over the word, and critique it. I pray, Lord, that we would learn from you, that we would see your ways as beautiful, and that we would want to follow you all our days. I pray this in Jesus' name.